This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I am very excited for today's episode, as I am all my episodes, but really actually this one today in particular. So I have with me today Ariana Moran, and she is a Dr. Moran, a psychologist who has a private practice. Her practice is based in New York, but she's physically based in Vermont. And the reason that I asked Ariana to be on the show today is because I frequently think about the impact of the decisions we're being asked to make and the environment we're asked to address and kind of how we as humans use the other parts of our brains to address these issues and not just kind of like our technical solving abilities or whatever. And so Ariana has a practice that talks a lot about environmental psychology. And I just wanted to have her on today to kind of talk about what she's seen and just kind of unpack that a little bit because I think it's a really important aspect of the discussion to be having. So Ariana, could you for our listeners give just a little introduction to who you are and kind of what you do? Yeah, of course. And hi, everyone. And thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and break down these silos and have some conversation across fields. So I am a psychologist, as stated, and I have a specialization area in climate distress or eco-psychology. It has many names. And I own my own private practice, and I do work that really emphasizes what it looks like when people come to therapy and their primary distress or their primary concern is some kind of climate-related distress, whether that's eco-anxiety or climate guilt or any of the above. It can look like so many different things, but that's really their primary reason for coming to therapy. And then of course we find out later it's all connected, but that's sort of what I, what I do in my day to day. Okay. I'm honestly so excited about this because I frequently think about the weight of some of the conversations that we're having and kind of like how we process this. And so I'm, I'm super excited about this. So I think maybe a good entree into the discussion today is, could you maybe tell us about how and when this is like a field and a practice, you know, you you saw that kind of developing as like a unique concern of the population that needed to be addressed? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is really an emerging thing, I think, in lots of fields, but in psychology especially, we're really just at the very forefront of people naming this experience for themselves and then seeking treatment for it. And I would say it really kind of falls into these two main categories. Obviously, there are outliers, but there are sort of the older generation of people who have been maybe environmentalists or activists have been aware of this problem for a long time and are sort of you know, have been living with this for their whole lives. And then there's, of course, our younger generation of people who sort of are coming of age in the climate crisis. And this has really been just sort of a part of their lived experience since they were tiny children. Mm -hmm. And I would say that we're seeing those two main sort of categories, but it's really a lot has been 
escalated by the introduction of climate emergency, climate change conversations in the mainstream media. And I don't think that even really started happening until maybe 2017, 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of people sort of have this climate awakening and be like, oh, okay, (laughs) this is a thing. And, you know, we need to start talking about it. So, yeah. Yeah, we do. (laughs) So... (laughs) I have so many questions right there. We're going to get back to like the separate generations because I have so many questions right there. But before we go there, I want to maybe ask a couple more background questions. But like typically, like what are you seeing as as the conditions that are causing concern for these folks? Like, you know, like how is this distress like manifesting it for people? Like kind of how would you identify it as climate stress? Because I think your, your statement earlier about this being new and kind of just also like naming something. I think it's yeah. really important. So what are kind of the the things that you hear people like, exp- how is their concern expressed? I guess is my question. Yeah, totally. So people will come in with really just like, oftentimes it looks like just a lot of emotional flooding or emotional dysregulation or overwhelm where they're like, I'm feeling a lot and I know that it's connected to the climate but I need help disentangling it. And once you start disentangling it, you start realizing what people's fears are. They're really around safety and they're really around things like their future and the decision to have children, for example, uh, lifestyle decisions, you know, what do I eat? What do I wear? You know, and, and I think a lot of these people that I'm describing experience a lot of emotional distress because there's like a sense of helplessness or maybe a sense of responsibility in like, what's my part and how do I fit? And I think there's also this idea of, you know, there's pre-traumatic stress for people where this is more of an existential concern. It's like the Mm -hmm. thought of that's really causing the distress. And then there's- So pre-traumatic stress, that's actually like, I mean, that makes sense if there's post-traumatic stress, pre-traumatic distress. Okay. Yeah. It's a term and it's kind of almost like we're now wondering if it's even relevant because there are so many people now who have been directly impacted that like, Mm -hmm. we don't even know if we can really use that term accurately anymore, but I think it still fits for a lot of people who just, it's more existential and less like a lived experience. Right. And then Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people in what you said who have, you know, sort of more acute or more post-traumatic stress who have either experienced a climate related disaster, maybe in their community or know someone who have, or, you know, there's climate migration, climate refugees. And and so those are the people who have had like a direct impact on their mental health from the climate. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like you said earlier, the media, you know, like I, I don't live in Florida. I'm not personally impacted by Hurricane Ian, yeah. but you're seeing all those people, you know, floating, you know, they're all, their homes are totally flooded. Yes. They're, they're totally dispossessed, you, you know, like it's, and oh, oh my gosh, and you think about like Haiti or Cuba, we will, yeah. we'll this is, we'll stop the downward depressing spiral. I'll get, the, I'll get back to that. <laughs> yes. That's always their waiting. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So they're coming in and they're feeling emotionally overwhelmed. I heard you hear a lot of guilt, mm-hmm. you know, helplessness, decisions. That's actually one that kind of sticks out to me because I think, and maybe this is because I'm an overthinker. <laughs> We're going to work out a lot, Ariana. <laughs> oh, perfect. We'll do a little therapy session right now. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm an open book. I love that. But like, I think in my personal life, the weight of decision-making is something that I feel heavily, you know, like, oh, should I do X or should I do Y or, you know, prioritizing and kind of, you know, just the executive function to make decisions is something that eats a lot of my brain power. 
But I yeah. th- you mentioned earlier though about how this is a decision heavy experience for people. Like, what do I do? Yeah. Like, what does that look like? That's such a good way to put it. Yeah, a decision heavy experience. That's exactly right. Because you know, we're people, and as people, we're we're sort of wired to be future oriented. Like, I think we're always being trained and conditioned to sort of think what the next step is and what the next decision is and what this next life milestone should be. And so I think it really does, it's such a domino effect. It's like, well, when we start really understanding that maybe there isn't a future or like the future that we imagined is like not, not realistic anymore, then what do we do now? How do we change our life or how do we think differently or, you know, how do we sort of change behavior? And it can really look like these big things. Like I have people who come in you know, maybe they work in the energy sector and they're realizing, uh-oh, what I'm doing for my work is actually contributing to the problem and it's actually not <laughs> aligning with my value system. And so maybe I need you to make a radical that my husband change. works at oil and gas. <laughs> oh, oh my God, I did not know that. <laughs> I'm kidding. He's on the good side if there is one. <laughs> and right. And so, right, there's so much nuance. Like there yeah. is there is a good side. I do yeah. believe that. Yeah. That's so funny. Anyway. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's an example. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, but someone coming in being like, you know, career stability, you know, Mm -hmm. home stability, those kind of questions, you know, what does this mean? Yeah, and like, do I need to make this radical life change? Like, do I need to change my career? Or is it the smaller decisions about, you know, my own personal footprint or like how how Mm -hmm. I'm engaging in community? It's really, it runs the range, you know, from big decisions to tiny little ones. Can I give you a tiny little one that I think is really interesting and that I've thought about a bunch? Please, yeah. Okay, this is also definitely a window into the privilege that I get to experience in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm a big avid skier. I love to ski. You know, like I grew mm-hmm. up in a ski town, ski all the time, like came to Utah to go to law school to ski. Like I'm really, I really oh. enjoy skiing. And I live with a 17 and a 15 year old, so that younger generation. And yeah. I'll find myself saying things like, well, we should go skiing because you guys aren't going to have many ski seasons left. Like, and just like the, those words coming mm. out of my mouth to me is something that it's, that is so nuanced. You know what I mean? It's because um, yeah. here in the Wasatch, we're not anticipated to have snow by 2080. I mean, that is like sixty years, less than 60 years away, there might not be any snow at any of the ski resorts, you know, in my dad's lifetime and my, you know, almost yeah. one and a half of my lifetimes, you know? Yeah. Your kids and, but, lifetimes. That, but that's so late in though, right? Cause also I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want them to fear the future, but I think we need to have a real conversation about it. Yeah. So actually you're bringing up kind of a central tenant to the work, which is that once you once you start to unpack these big emotions, like you're talking about sort of this idea of like there being like there being scarcity, like there's a resource and it's we're running out of it and that's snow. And that means that maybe we need to pay attention a little more to like how precious it is and how finite it is. And I think in that there's like this huge emotional process of grief, perhaps, or loss, or you know, any other rage, helplessness, whatever. And I think the the grief piece is so important because when you get to the grief, you can really also get to the other side, which is the love and how much do I care for this thing? And mm-hmm. like, how much do I really focus in on how precious it is and have these meaningful life experiences before they're not possible to have anymore? Mm-hmm. 
but also like, how do I not, you know, give a negative impression of the future to these kids? Because the thing is, I think because I think about water all of the time, and I've talked about this in the podcast is like, we are about to ask the public to do some serious heavy lifting if we're going to change anything. You know what I mean? And so they have to be positively engaged. And so I'm very like sensitive to like reporting and I do water and water. I mean, like asking for a recipe of like, you know, Uh, word cycle, but it's okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, we need them to engage and like want to roll their sleeves up opposed to throw their hands up. And that is hard. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's such a good analogy. And we talk about kind of there being this spectrum between like you're either head in the clouds, optimistic and in in this unrealistic way, or you're completely pessimistic and nihilistic on the other side of that. And neither is helpful and really causes a lot of paralysis. And I think, you know, some of the work that I do is, is helping people find what, whatever their middle is that we're not we're, we want to have this kind of compassionate but realistic lens towards the future. And we do we do want the public at large to sort of have that approach as well, that no one is personally responsible, but no one is completely helpless either. Like, we want to be able to have people look at this thing with meaning and agency, you know, and it's kind of this interplay between like my personal life and then like this larger collective experience happening. Yeah. Which is a lot to take in. <laughs> it's so much to take in. Yeah. So, you know, if you, oh, please go. Mm-hmm. Well, I was mm-hmm. just going to say, you know, and as a, as a therapist, like I'm also personally going through this, you know, this isn't one of those things where I'm guiding someone through something that either I was trained in or, or maybe I, I had a personal connection at some point, but like, this is actively happening. And like, mm-hmm. I'm a person as well as a, a therapist in this too, and going through this with people. So there's an mm-hmm. element of that too. So I guess then on that note, if you are someone who really finds this climate causing you concern, which it should, I mean, it also should, that's the other it thing. Should. Like we should feel concerned. <laughs> like, yes, yes. <laughs> we should be concerned. At this point we should. Yeah, yeah for sure. So like, what are some of the, um, tools that you give your your clients to kind of help them work through that yeah I mean I think I like that we just kind of said that that we should all be concerned because I I sometimes have the experience of why aren't we talking about this more in my field and and all fields maybe feel that way to a certain degree and I sometimes feel very confused as to why my clients don't talk about it more I mean the ones who like don't come in with this as a presenting concern because I think everyone on some level, I'm curious about that. You know, people are either consciously engaged with it or they're unconsciously engaged, which means that they're using active avoidance or denial or, or dissociation, you know, to not engage with it, which anyway, it's not really answering your question, but mm-hmm. I, I think that tools is a really wide range. And I think people, so I would say first and foremost, it's really sort of this emotion focused process of like, figuring out what it is you're feeling, first of all, or the feelings as there are likely many and and very sort of intertwined, figuring out what you're feeling and validating that and maybe having that validated in a professional setting that like, it makes total sense that you would feel this way. And actually look what a healthy response you're having. Anyone who was awake to the conditions of the world should be feeling this way. And I think even just that sometimes shifts people out of this kind of panic or paralysis and into 
being able to like move again. And then once you're moving again, then it's like, well, then the world's open. So then we can think about what meaningful action looks like for you. Do you want to make individual changes in your life? How do you want to talk to your children? How do you want to, you know, talk to your coworkers? And and there's so many different things, but it's also like about balance. It's like you can't go so far in one direction that you're neglecting other aspects of your life mm-hmm. and nor can you prioritize your own personal well-being at the expense of the collective. So it's kind of that that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I that's interesting too because I have um it's funny how you choose to to interact with the problem, you know. Yeah. <laughs> My girlfriends and I had this like long text chain once and I felt kind of guilty about it, but it was about recycling. And trust me, I love recycling. Like I used to like yeah. work at a recycling center, like no joke. Oh wow. Yeah. And then like I have to tell you, I recycle less and less now because I'm like, it's all plastic that just goes to a yeah. landfill. Or like I had this yeah. like terrible sad statement where we were have a building project and they wanted to bury the trash on our property and I was like no you can't bury the trash on here and then I was like well it just goes to be buried like a hundred miles away you know <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, know, you yes. kind of realize these things you know and yeah. so I guess one of the things that I am curious about too is like maybe it's like the helpless emotion you just discussed a little bit but are people kind of working through though in outside their individual action plan? Are people kind of working through though, like how we got here? Because in my mind, it's like mm. the fact that I believe so heavily in recycling and feel less and less secure about that now. And I'm someone who wants solutions, you know? Yeah. Like, how did I start there and get here? And it's like, are these are questions of like public policy? Like, well, should yeah. we have like one, we never pass the cost of recycling on to the producer. And so we need to like have better public policy, like in people processing yeah. the effect of the climate in their lives. Are they also processing the mechanisms of how it works? How we got here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What that sort of brings up in me is what a lot of people who came to the, I guess I would call it a, the climate awakening a little bit not later in life, but just like, I would say like 30 and up, like people mm-hmm. who like didn't necessarily grow up with it and then come to it later. They describe this kind of like horror at how, you know, how things were when they were growing up that like, mm-hmm. we were basically living in this fairy tale world where we were constantly being lied to by these big organizations and governments. And like, we were told that everything is sort of fine in the world. And look, we closed the ozone layer and like, recycling is good and that's what you should do. And like, once you have this awakening of like every single aspect of daily life is, is problematic in some way, then there's this looking back on your life with like real sense of awe and overwhelm at, at how, how we got here, but how it was so normalized, like how Mm -hmm. all of these systems were in place to really keep us blind to the problem and to, to really kind of keep people turned away from the problem. And and that's like talking about people's sort of like individual histories. And then I think the people who put more thought into it are also thinking about like capitalist systems and, mm-hmm. and kind of the development of humanity and, you know, industry and that kind of a thing too. And that definitely enters the conversation. Yeah, but I also kind of want to go there because I also think like it, as an equal counterbalance to the, I feel like the concern we should feel there. You know, that we just talked about a minute ago. I think the counterbalance to that is also like, well, we also have some constructive curiosity about it too. Because like, would it look like to have a society? I think about this a lot because in America, we're just so big 
And mm-hmm. we don't travel enough, which is unfortunate. And we should all have sabbaticals at our jobs for three months so mm-hmm. we can go travel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's make this world. Let's, Let's make it, it existence. Be the, be the change you want to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But seriously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah, because I think too, like there are other ways to like design societies, you know? And, you mm-hmm. know, I feel we're so distracted on like labels right now, but I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about like in the survey of your patients, if people get to that conversation and what kind of conversation they're having on that front, you know, like what does it mean and how we organize and what we do? And yeah, yeah. And I think you're sort of actually highlighting maybe a gap in what's not being talked about as widely. I think people really are are tuned into like the immediate reality. And I think sometimes it's harder to go back a little bit and understand because it's so big, you know, the scope mm-hmm. and the perspective is so big to understand how we got here and then where to go. And I think really what we need more of in sort of my field, the mental health sector is the case for not optimism, because I sort of have a very ambivalent reaction to that word, but like, mm-hmm. can we basically what you and I were just doing, can we at least start to sketch out the parameters of like what a society, what a culture, what a world would look like if things were different. And I do think that people are interested in that idea, but feel really far away from it because we're not leading by example. We're leading with fear really. And I think people feel, you know, like the younger generation, like your people, your kids age, or there's like the whole climate doomer mindset of literally like not able to imagine a future or like not being Mm -hmm. willing to imagine a future even because all of the options that have been presented are so bleak. So I think people really struggle to do kind mm-hmm. of what you're what you're curious about. Yeah. Cuz I think that that's I mean I think that's the question and I think I mean this is the big ball of wax, you know. We're going to I mean, Yeah. I don't care and I'm just going to throw all my thoughts out there. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Well, Because I was a political theory major in college. And so we studied like, it's basically like a classics, a political theory and constitutional democracy major. So it was basically like a classic study. Lots of like Locke, Republic, you know, all the big books from old white men. But Mm -hmm. I was also a social relations major that talked a lot about like public policy and kind of like racial justice and, you know, kind of a good balance. But how we organize in our, our societal preferences, I think, though, is something that we do should be part of that conversation because I think it just comes back to like empathy, you know, like how do we feel about if you're feeling safe and comfortable and you're trusting of others, then like you're more willing to try. And if you're not safe and comfortable and trusting of others, you're going to be an individualist, you know, and like how do we create worlds that are like safe and trusting of others? And I think that is a discussion that whatever level or color that needs to have should be, it just needs to be had too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, if we're thinking about people who maybe we would call climate deniers or people who feel like they're sort of working for the problem instead of against it, I would actually say that there's quite a lot of psychological richness happening in Mm -hmm. the minds of those people because that's exactly it. You know, they're feeling scarcity, they're feeling like they're afraid and they need to protect themselves and their loved ones and their sort of immediate circle. And I think that's what this kind of fear mindset does is it creates the individual and it creates, you know, distance from me and them and 
maybe this is happening in low income and black and brown communities all over the world, but it's not happening in my community. So I don't need to think about it. And Mm -hmm. you sort of see the way, the ways in which people psychologically develop into being more community oriented or being more sort of focused on themselves as individuals, which is an interesting aspect of my work because I work on the individual level and you really get in with someone's mind. And then what I believe is that, you know, healing is contagious and that once someone sort of gets their own house in order, then it ripples and Mm -hmm. then they're able to engage with their circles and then their communities differently. But it really is. It's all about building empathy. I mean, that's really the core of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And how, and sorry to go backwards. I could go on and on about this, but like, but also how that trickles into public policy. Cause like I read a really, I had a really good little snippet on NPR the other day. If you haven't gotten my political views, I listen to a lot of NPR, (laughs) but I'm very neutral and practical. I am. I promise. (laughs) Cool. But it was about how the social safety network was in a country, informal or formal, which I think is important to recognize, really was one of the best indices of how an area bounced back from climate change. And they right. gave a example of some flooding in Bangladesh. And because of like, you know, just whatever the culture was in Bangladesh, there was organized rice sharing and organized, you know, activity. And they were able to bounce back more easily. And put in like in spaces where it's each for their own. I mean, I think the coronavirus pandemic, you know, the just the yeah. there is a great example of this nobody wins. And so, I don't know. I just think that there's both like internal discussions to be had, but how those radiate out into like our public policy discussions is just fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think that that story on NPR you listen to is, is such a good example of like when something impacts the community collectively. And I mean, I don't know if this is true having not studied it, but I would sort of assume that if we're all going through an experience together, that's going to sort of automatically have this kind of shared empathy and we're all collectively experiencing the mental health impacts. And so then we're that much more motivated to help each other with resources and support and scaffolding, you know, versus some of these other communities like privileged or affluent people don't become impacted and they sort of save themselves and it doesn't work its way up into policy. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I don't know where we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. But well, I think this is just a, a good discussion to be having because I think whether or not it's present on your mind or not, this is kind of coloring everyone's opinion of the world and kind of how we walk through it right now. And so I think it's important to, in concert with building better infrastructure and building better management and building better technology. Like, I just think we have to also build better people, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but just like people, like we're, that we're also part of it, part of a bigger solution. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have all these really smart systems and technologies and, you know, they're not going to do us any good unless the people themselves are working towards wellness too. I, I think that's, you know, getting into this work, climate psychology is not something that they really are teaching in schools yet. You know, it's not, it's something that I came to just because of my own personal experiences. And I was like, oh, I need to sort of align my professional life with my personal values a little bit more. And this is something that I really thought about, you know, this sort of idea of people are unwell and we need to really sort of validate the people's response to this on an emotional level, on a psychological level. And I think that helps people to sort of engage better and like 
not be so, mm-hmm. you know, if we can just work, like the, the emotions are so big that I think that's really what the barrier is. Like people get so afraid, they get so overwhelmed and flooded, kind of like I was talking about at the beginning. And if we can really sit with and engage and have the tools to like move through those emotions, then that makes a better person. And that makes a person more able to interact with the system. Well, Ariana, this was fantastic and interesting and great and just really good. Do you have anything we didn't get a chance to chat about that you'd kind of have on your mind or you'd like our listeners to think about? If you don't mind, I was just sort of curious to ask you, like in your work, you know, as an environmental lawyer, like, do you see, you know, because I feel like people's mental health is always present, whether we're talking about it or not. I was just sort of curious from your experience. Have you seen people struggling with this? Like in your work? People ask me questions. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I hope that's okay. No, 100%. Well, no, that's kind of why I wanted to have somebody on is that like, I mean, there's no particular instance where I am like, oh, you know, I feel like this person is experiencing angst that I could, you know, identify. But it's more like, just the professionals I work with, I have nothing but just like the warmest thoughts and good, good feelings towards my colleagues who work in water. It really is a unique field. And I think unique yeah. right now because the drought is so acute and the issues are so acute, but really yeah. it's always been like an incredibly collaborative environment. And so definitely has the potential to be incredibly contentious, but also at the moment mm-hmm. it has been for a long time. I, I, I find that kind of people choose to work together because it, it matters. So, mm-hmm. but I, but one thing I have been thinking about in, in my field is there just must be some kind of effect of the steady drip of just very sobering news, you know, like yeah. how do you muster the energy to be creative and organized and talented answer so many hard questions at the same time. And that's what I think is the theme that really strikes out to me because, you know, we work with very talented people here and, but the questions are also really big and really hard and there's just so many of them. Yeah. So you're really engaging with like the full complexity of it all. Yeah, yeah, like because like a lot of my like for example like Candace Hossenager who's been a, a guest on our podcast who acts as the Division of Water Resources Director or like Teresa Wilmanson who's like the state engineer. By the way, we've got a ton of female leadership in the water sector, oh, which is awesome. That is amazing. Yeah, but I mean, they're asked to like you know, across her desk on a day-to-day basis is like, oh, the Great Salt Lake is drying up. We need water for this. Oh, the Colorado River is drying up. We need water for this. Oh, you know, there's X, Y, and Z happening over here. And it just is a, I, there just must be an effect from that. I just can't imagine there's not an effect for just like daily engaging with just like hard, complex, and, you know, very important problems. Yeah. And the people that you're sort of working with must I'm 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 in 100% agreement, but they must also sort of have their own ways, right? Like mm-hmm. they're either people are sort of disconnected, or maybe they're just sort of used to it. They're desensitized, and some people I think feel like they get a lot of meaning out of doing the work itself. Like that mm-hmm. is also like a healing of the emotion. It just makes mm-hmm. it sort of makes me curious. Another conversation for another time, but it makes me yeah. curious about how everyone is dealing with that. Yeah. Well, Ariana, this has been fantastic. And I would love to have you back on, you know, as you, as your practice evolves, as you see things that are interesting, like you are always welcome, because I think this is just an ongoing conversation that just needs to be had. 
Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to come back sometime. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.